You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. This week, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20 is our text. And I want to talk this morning how Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than. Now what we understand is that the Gospel of Mark is the first Gospel written from what historians believe is that this was the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter. Now we can't uh, we can only assume that. That's what I've been able to find is the best guess there or the best uh, uh, educated guess is that this book of Mark of 16 chapters is actually the eyewitness account of Peter. And we see this because, first of all, we know that Mark wasn't one of the 12 apostles. There was nobody with him, but yet this is this recording of what's happening. We see over 40 times in this book where Mark uses the word immediately. So, personally, I love the gospel of uh, Mark because it's absolutely short. It's super condensed. The thing about it, though, is that we can kind of read over it so quickly that we miss what the text is saying. And specifically, this morning, what we're going to see just in four verses, we're going to see what God is saying something far bigger than if we just look at it real quickly, we'll totally miss it. It's almost like um, you're, you, you know, a window can actually either restrict what you see or open up to what you see. Uh, if, if you stand back and you look at it, you just see a, a little sliver, but if you press your nose up against it, not only do you see just this section of the window, but you see everything. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look into this text and show us that this is really just the tip of uh, something far bigger of what God's doing. So Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, the scripture says this, And Jesus was passing along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were with them in the boat, mending their nets, literally fixing, repairing their nets. Verse 20 says, and immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is really interesting. In just four verses, we see something that's, uh, this is life-altering moment. Jesus passing by Simon and Andrew in the middle of their fishing says, follow me. Just, just follow me. They drop the nets and go. Jesus moves on a little bit farther and he sees James and John, two brothers that are fixing a net. And Jesus goes, follow me. And they leave. Uh, I, I, we, don't, we don't run in any situation like this in our life because the truth is, uh, on the surface, we don't have a, a literal physical Jesus Christ in the flesh walking the streets today going, follow me and let me gather my disciples. If you've met that guy while you were in Los Angeles, that's not him, all right? That's the guy with the cardboard sign. That's somebody else. That's not, that's not Jesus. Although he's got the, you know, this is, that, that's not him. So the truth is, on the surface, we're not going to run into this same scenario. This isn't us. We're not going to be ever, we're not ever going to be pressed with this because we're never going to actually have a literal physical Jesus in the middle of you working show up and go, hey, I need you to follow me. And you go, great, I hate my job. And I run. That's not it. We're not going to have that opportunity for Jesus to say, leave your job and follow me. That, that, that's not what's happening here. But what it is, is this, that Jesus is displaying that he has an authority that's beyond mankind. He has an authority that's bigger and greater than anything. Uh, we were in Mexico a few years back, and um, actually every time I uh, go to Mexico I get sick. I'm not quite sure what that's about, but uh, I was walking through the streets, and um, they've got the like, little markets that are, that are there. And 
when you, when you show up, everyone's like, follow me, follow me, follow me. And everyone wants to sell you something. Who's been in a market like that? You've experienced that. And everywhere you go. Now, you know how important your time is. Catch this. You know how important your time is by the value of a distraction. You know how important your time is depending on the value of your distraction. So if you have nothing to do, you love like taking the scenic route. And you love driving by the water and seeing all that. But if you have somewhere to go, you don't care who's in your way. You run them over. You just go. So Jesus is going, follow me. In other words, what I'm speaking to you is of more value than what you're currently engaged in. Follow me. Change your pattern. They're focused. They're working. And in the middle of them working, Jesus says, I'm better than your work. Now, in Jesus' just really two words, follow me, he presses on really three things here. First, he says this, that I'm better than your family. Better than your family. It's interesting. He comes to them and he says, follow me. And it says they left their father in a boat. Talk about a rude way to leave. You ever just left somebody right in the middle of doing something? Follow me. They're in the middle of working and he goes, uh, Jesus said, go, I got to go. Well, what is this? Jesus is saying, follow me. I'm better than family. We see in the book of Luke chapter 9 where Jesus says this, that if you want to love me, you have to hate your family. Uh, There's not really, uh, to, to make it clear, there's not really a nice way of saying that. And then number two, when Jesus is saying hate, he's not saying aggressive, he's saying comparatively. He's saying this, that I want you to love me so much that everything else is not even on the same scale. I want, to, I want you to love me, value me so greatly. It's interesting because particularly in this area, which is uh, predominantly Catholic, we have so many people here at City Lights that this actually presses against your life. We had somebody recently that struggled with the idea of, uh, of, of baptism just because of recognizing his family was coming against him and saying, I'm going to disown you if you... Follow Christ in that way. If you're not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, then I'm going to disown you. This is a real issue. Jesus says, I'm better than family. Following me costs you something. Then he presses him second. He says this, leave your boats. Leave it all behind. And, and this, is, this is probably what touched many of us here this morning. Jesus says, I'm better than your finances. You know, it's interesting when we, we look at following God, it costs us something monetarily. Now, I'm not talking about an offering bucket that goes by and you have to t- toss money. I'm saying when we follow God, it costs us something because the values of the kingdom look far different than the values of this world. Jesus says, follow me. Leave your work behind. Why? Leave your work behind. I have something better than work, more ultimate than work, something that's going to bring satisfaction beyond work. What I think is fascinating about this text is he says this, I'll make you fishers of men. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I don't understand that, so I know they didn't understand that. If you're in a boat and someone walks up and they say, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm going to first pretend I didn't hear that. I'm going to go back to working on my boat. Number two, I'm going to go to my wife. Honey, you might want to sit back. This is going to get a little weird. This guy's a little crazy. He's saying fishing, fishing for men. That's creeping me out a little bit because that's either one, there's men under the sea, which there's a book about that. Number two, he's fishing for the wrong type of thing here. So I'm like wondering what, what, what's going on. Jesus, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. What's he, what's he appealing to? What is Jesus saying here? This is something that presses 
all of us. He's saying that your work will never bring satisfaction, period. He says, follow me. There's something beyond this work because you're working, you're toiling. Everything you do is invested into this work. And he goes, listen, there's something that's, that you're seeking for, which we understand philosophers have uh, labeled existentialism. There's, there's something that we're seeking for, which we'll define on our own. Existentialists say that if I could just uh, rise to the greatest place and work or success is what I define or pleasure is what I define. But he says this, there's something outside of you, not in you. He appeals to this. He says, satisfaction cannot be found in something you can do. You don't have the ability, regardless of how successful your business is. You don't have, you don't have the ability regarding how great your family is to be able to find satisfaction. Jesus appeals to something in them which they didn't have. They didn't have. You know, it's kind of the same thing goes when we think about uh, there's a tendency, let me say it like this, there's a tendency to, to read about people in the Bible and just think that they were, like, psychologically unstable. Like King Solomon, for instance, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, he writes this whole incredible uh, paragraph or whatever, this journal entry, and in it he writes, I've got more houses than everyone has, I've got more singers and dancers and more vineyards, and I've got more wine, and I've got private choirs, because they didn't have radio. They have, he's got everything you could ever want. And, and what does he say at the end? What does he say at the end? And the, the, the last verse says, and vanity of vanity, all is vanity. See, the lie of humanity is that if you get more of what you already have, you'll be satisfied. Period. Humanity, there's something in us that just says, if I could have more of what I already have, if I could have more success, if I could have more money, if I could have more affirmation, if I could have more uh, relationships, if I could have more sex, if I could have more whatever, if I could just have a little bit more. So that's why what cracks me up is you walk through a grocery store and there before your eyes is all these magazines set up and they're fitness magazines. And the fitness magazine says, have this body in 60 days. Right? And the, the, the crazy thing is, think about it, it's counterintuitive because if you signed up for that magazine and in 60 days, come on, you wouldn't need to sign up for it anymore. You'd cancel your subscription. But, but watch this. See, you don't find people that are out of shape reading fitness magazines. Who do you find? People that are in shape. Who reads Money Magazine? Not people that are broke. Who reads Forbes? People that are in Forbes. Because why? Because there's something in us that desires more of what we have. More of what we have. And Jesus challenges this. He presses this and says, follow me. I'll make you to become something that you don't have the ability for. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And in that moment, he was saying this. There's something outside of this world that presses on all of our consciences that you cannot escape. All of us. I'm going to make you to become something you don't have the power to. See, this is, this is amazing because here he's saying this, that as long as we can hide it or suppress it, as long as we can keep our humanity in control, we feel good about ourselves. We do. But it's kind of like when you're swimming and you've got one of those beach balls, press it under your legs and you're trying to hold it down. That's what life's like. In our humanity, we can kind of keep everything under control. Kind of keep it under the surface. It all works until, until something slips. 
Whatever that is, and you know the scary part is, for a lot of us, sometimes nothing will ever slip. Some of us will go through life being able to keep it calm and collected and cool for everybody but ourselves. Jesus is saying this, you need something outside of you. See, right here we see just a breaking in of what the gospel truly is. The gospel is this, Jesus didn't come to be a teacher, he came to be a rescuer. The saddest part about Christianity is that we could reduce Jesus' statements down to uh, good moralistic fortune cookie encouragements. That when I'm having a rough day, I do Bible roulette. Who's ever done that? You throw it against the wall, it opens up, and you go, that didn't work, and try it again, and that didn't work again. And finally you land on one, you go, ah, I got it. I can rest my conscience. He loves me. No, I've got good news for you. You don't have to throw your Bible against the wall. He loves you. Why? Because he's displayed it through the finished work of the cross. Jesus is saying this, though. I didn't come to just ease your conscience. He didn't didn't come up and say, oh, here I am. And as you're fishing, let me give you a scripture verse to encourage your human efforts towards fishing today. You look like you're having a rough time mending that net. Let me say this. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. He's got them blazing white Colgate teeth. He doesn't say that. He shows up and says, listen, the gospel, Christianity, is centered not on man's encouragement, not on God coming to encourage man, but God saving, rescuing, redeeming. Redeeming. See, the concern here is that we would look at this scripture as we do with the rest of the Bible. We reduce it to moralism as if we are somewhat struggling through life, kind of paddling our way through life, and every once in a while we go, I'm getting a little tired, I need a Bible verse. Somebody kind of throws us a little Bible verse, and we go, oh, I got one on Facebook today, I feel better. I needed that one. And then we keep swimming on our own. We just keep kind of moving on our own and occasionally somebody tosses us another one or we go, man, having a rough day, didn't read my Bible. And what we begin to do is find out that our religion is actually focused on how we control God rather than how we follow Christ. Our religion becomes based on how God fits into my life rather than how Christ redefines it. How he looks at it, what he says changes everything. Jesus demonstrates a different type of authority here, something so far out of this world. We have a tendency to think in terms of opposites. I don't know if you realize this. If I say dark, you say... I can get this going into a whole... Come on. Yankee Stadium here, right? If I say big, you think... Little and or small, depending on... Thoughts. If I say round, you say... Square. Or straight, I guess. Wow. I think light, we think dark. Now, if I say Satan, what's Satan's opposite? He's not. So this is the problem here, is that our minds think so in terms of opposites that when we look at Jesus, we don't recognize that he's not just the opposite of Satan. Listen, God has no equal. There is no opposite. His authority goes beyond. When I say, who is the opposite of God? He has none. There's nothing that touches him. What Jesus displays here is an authority that is on no comparison. There's not a way to look at this and just say, well, he's a little bit bigger than me. And what this is the, really what aches all of us is that at the end, the very fundamental part of who we are is that we reduce God to somebody that's just a little bit better than us. Just a little bit stronger. 
He answers prayers just a little bit. He's a little bit stronger than us. That's not the Jesus we serve. See, Jesus says, I have an authority beyond this world. I'm better than your family. I'm better than your finances. And then he says this, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Now, listen, at this time, from what we understand, at least chronologically in Mark, uh, Jesus performed uh, little to no miracles, at least from Mark, no miracles. This wasn't like Jesus had, like, you know, what does is, what is, uh, your 401k package look like if you follow me? Well, you know, we match everything up to 5%. It's a good deal. Is health insurance included? Well, I am the healer of the universe, so I think I got that one covered. He, he didn't go through that. He just says, follow me. Follow me. I'm better than your future. I'm better than your control. I'm better than. Jesus presses each of them by saying, there is something you're seeking for that you will never find by looking deeper into who you are. You can meditate. You can stare in a mirror all day. You are lacking something until you find Christ as our Savior. We preach the gospel so strong here. Because the gospel is not something that we accept just as you know, Jesus is looking for a place to come live inside of our hearts. I remember Jesse a few weeks ago, this was really funny, um, they were talking about, talking to Haley, who's, I guess, four years old right now, and they were saying about Christ, you know, lives inside of you, and she was eating something. She goes, so if I eat this, does Jesus eat this too? Kind of. <laughs> no. <laughs> that would definitely change our diets, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's like, God, Jesus isn't that big fan of chicken wings. The gospel is not just something that we accept as if it's like the door, that I walk into the door and then I go, oh, I got it, everything's good. No, the gospel shapes everything. What is the gospel? The gospel is the news. It is the literal news of a new emperor with implications towards our lives. N.T. Wright in his book, What Paul Really Says, says this. He says that Jesus, the, the understanding of the gospel doesn't come across like this. That if you would like to give Jesus a chance, there's a new emperor, and if you'd like to give him a chance, he'd be happy to come live inside you and you can experience what it means to live a life under Jesus. That's not the gospel. If you've heard something like that, I apologize for whoever preached that because they weren't seeing the beauty of this. The gospel is an authoritative summons to the king of creation, to the king of the world, saying, I have not only what you're looking for, I have everything you need, whether you're looking for it or not. Jesus says, I am better than any of your joys. Better. I'm better than finances. Better than relationships. I'm better than uh, a different relationship. I'm better than all of that. See, if, if we came up and, it, and I said, listen, follow me this morning. I've got what you need. That would be nothing short of prideful because I would let you down and I would fail you. But if God doesn't say, follow me, then that's absolutely selfish. The most selfless act that God could ever do for us is say, follow me. If I say that, there's something in me that goes right to the pyramid scheme and I go, if I can get enough people to follow this, follow that, then it works out better for me. But God says this, follow me. If he doesn't, that's why he can violate his own command. Jesus says, don't be jealous. 
Don't be jealous of other people's things. In Exodus 20, he says this, that we shouldn't be envious or jealous. Shouldn't have any other God beside him. You shouldn't envy a person's donkey. Thankfully, I don't struggle with that. You shouldn't envy a person's wife. Thankfully, I don't struggle with that either. But we shouldn't be envious of that. And how can God say, I'm a jealous God? How can he say that? He just said, you can't be jealous. And now he goes, well, I'm, I'm allowed to be jealous. You just can't. How can God violate his command? This is sim- simple. Because he'd be sinning against himself if he didn't violate his own command. Why? Because all of our jealousy is rooted with our self-centeredness at the forefront. God's jealousy is his character, his glory at the forefront. He violates his command. Why? Because he's not breaking his law. He's revealing who he is. For God not to be selfish would for be God to be selfish. hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, talk through that maybe one-on-one sometime. God has to be selfish for his glory. Why? Because you were created for it. Well, well wait, 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 no. L- love doesn't work like that. Love lets people do what they want. Uh, my parents never let me do that. I think that that definition of love is such garbage. Because if you're a little kid, you're running across the street. Kids run across the street. No, we love him. We, we let him do what he wants. We don't superimpose. I was on vacation. A family member of mine was raising one of my, I guess it would be a nephew, cousin of such. I'm not really quite sure what's one of those crazy family things that you can't figure out without like a, a, a graph and somebody that's obsessed with the book of Revelation. They can figure it out. But everybody else that's normal in this world can't figure out those family ties. Sorry, I said that. But And the whole time on vacation, if you're obsessed with Revelation, that was not an attack on you. That was, And if you took it as one, I apologize um, for yourself. The whole time on vacation, though, the, the, the kid was going crazy. The kid was going crazy. And the mom was like, I, I just don't want to discipline. You know, I just, don't want to, I just want to let the child just learn, make good decisions. I'm like, your kid's two and he just threw a knife. He doesn't make good decisions. He still bites his thumb. That's a bad decision in life. You're going to have to teach him stop. Like, you can't throw knives. That's, that's wrong. So we got this we get this wacky definition of God. And it comes like this. We take love, which means our unconditional approval of who we are regardless of who we are. We take that definition of love. And we say, well, God's love. God just wants the best for me. What's the best for you? He does want the best for you, but it doesn't mean the best for you is what you think is the best for you. The best for me is that God could just make my life, if I could just have a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, everything would work out. It'd be good. He comes and he, he crashes that statement by saying this, follow me. He's saying there's something outside of you. You're looking for something bigger than you. Outside of you. You'll never have enough inside to replace what you need outside of you. The only reason I have to quote him is because I can't think of any way better to say it. C.S. Lewis says what? If nothing in this world satisfies me, the most logical explanation is that I was created for another world. If nothing satisfies you, if that satisfaction fades, it leaves. You're created for something bigger than this. Jesus says, follow me. This morning as we close, or I pass out from heat exhaustion, whatever comes first. The beauty of this is that Jesus doesn't ask you to do something that he hasn't done himself. When he says, follow me, 
incredible part of this is he doesn't say, follow me to become uh, a Christian. He doesn't say, no, he calls. We respond. He doesn't say, if you can follow me for X amount of time, you can be my disciple and then I'll let you in my kingdom. I love that. Because the call of the gospel meets each of us everywhere where we're at, regardless of if you feel like you've climbed a spiritual totem pole and you've ascended some great spiritual height and you think, God, wow, he really, he could use me now or he deserves me. I love this because Jesus just says, follow me. He doesn't say you've attained it, you've reached it. If you want to become my disciples, I'm taking up applications. This is what I need you to do. I need you to read your Bible X amount of times. I need you to do this X amount of times. I need you to spend a lot of time in prayer. No, who does he find? He finds fishermen. If anyone is here a professional fisherman, I apologize for the words I'm about to say. There's a reason you're a professional fisherman and you're not working for IBM. That went over like a lead balloon off the state, Empire State Building. All right, listen. Fisherman, this. If you're a professional fisherman, I'm not attacking. Now, if you own a fisherman, great. There's a reason that that's what you do. That's not an attack. I'm just simply saying, Jesus, find normal, ordinary, common people. He doesn't go find somebody that goes, you look like you attained to my standards. He looks at people which the world has forgotten. Looks at people that says, you've reached your peak because, you know what? When you work a job like a fisherman, your job is directly directly tied to how hard you work. You don't really advance up in the, you know, like as a fisherman. You don't. The fish don't like come to really respect you or something like that. Like we, this guy's a real good fisherman. Like, you know, we got to get in his boat. You know, he's putting his dues here. <laughs> come on. You understand what I'm saying? That there's certain jobs, the harder you work, the higher you excel. White collar jobs, you, the higher you work, the higher you excel. Professional fishermen, the harder you work, the harder you work. Jesus comes to normal people whose ceiling is everything that they could do on their own. And Jesus says, follow me. What's beautiful about that is this. He doesn't give them a standard. He doesn't say, you've got to do this. You've got to jump over these hoops. You've got to reach this moral high jump. If you can clear this thing, you can be my disciple. No, this is the story of the gospel. Christ comes and says, follow me. Why does it work? You know what's beautiful about this is we find out that as we go through these texts in the weeks to come, that the truth, the truth is the disciples don't really follow Jesus. They really don't. Yeah, they follow him in proximity. But not too many verses we see that they're calling down fire from heaven, which I know you've never done that. Somebody gets you upset and you call down fire from heaven. No, we don't do that. They see somebody else casting out a demon that's not a part of who they are. They're not a part of City Lights Church. Well, they're not, they're not allowed to move here. They're not, they're, Jesus isn't allowed to endorse what they're doing. So they, they go stop the guy casting out the demon. And they come back and they like tell Jesus like it's a cool thing. Like, Jesus, we stopped him from casting out a demon because he wasn't a part of us. Do you, do you realize what the logic says? They would rather have a man demonized than free if they weren't a part of their club. That's creepy. One day, Jesus comes and says, what, what are you doing? Oh, we're just arguing. Who's going to sit at your right hand when you go into the kingdom? They weren't talking about heaven. They thought Jesus was a literal physical king. Who's going to sit at the right hand? And Jesus goes, you don't understand what this thing is about. So the truth is, they don't really follow him. Yeah, I mean, in proximity, they kind of like, were like groupies. 
that God empowered later? Yeah, and I'm not trying to attack the apostles. I'm trying to show the humanity here because we far too often deify things that we shouldn't and we idolize things that we shouldn't either. We, we deify these apostles as if they were these magnificent people. No, God transformed them. Peter denied Christ. Jesus looked at him and said, Satan, get behind me. That, do you realize how heartbreaking that would be if your wife said that? Let alone if Christ said that? You're talking, you're like, Jesus, don't die. Get behind me, Satan. I'd be like... I'd turn to the guy beside me and be like, he definitely like sneezed there or something, right? He didn't say Satan. No, he said Satan. No, 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 no. We're talking later. He's like, dude, Jesus just called you Satan. And he said, get behind me. And Peter's like, I'll never rebuke you. I'll, I'll never deny you. Three times he curses to a schoolgirl. See, the, the, the truth of the story is that we don't follow Jesus. We, we don't. And all of us don't. But here's the, there's this, the beauty of the story is that Jesus doesn't call us to do something that he doesn't. Actually, he does what we could never do. He follows himself, being God, the triune God, perfectly. God follows God perfectly. This is going to be somewhat confusing for a second because the Trinity is something far beyond who we are. God follows God perfectly. God is for God. God is perfect in and who he is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfect in one, three in one. They follow on a bridge needing nothing. Perfect. They don't need anything. They're happy. They're joyful. They're joyous. And from this triune nature, they call, follow me. And when we fail, this is the beauty of the story. The beauty of the story is that when we fail, God's already taken that into account. Why? Because when we fall, it doesn't cost him anything. I would say stand, but uh, for my sake this morning, everyone grab your left knee in pain. All right, no, I'm kidding. This is, the, this is it. And I really am. I would say stand, but I've never really preached sitting down, so a little difficult. When God wanted to make a promise of salvation, Hebrews says he swore to himself. He knew he had screwed up. So when he says, follow me, he's implying that his grace is what sustains us. Nature of God, follow me. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel that calls us to follow you doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It also doesn't mean that we are going to make excuses. It means that you've paid the price. Well, religion calls us to follow a certain commands, and if we do, then we can be a disciple. Irreligion tells us that we just run as far away as we can from God, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of triune God, says that you have already perfectly satisfied who you are, and now you call us on the basis of your merit, not ours. Lord, this morning, I pray for those that are here that they would follow you, recognizing that you've perfectly followed your Father. We can't see you as an example until we see you as our substitute, Lord. You perfectly fulfilled, and now, therefore, we're empowered by your Spirit to follow you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.